Welcome back to another episode of Beyond the Ribbon. This podcast is brought to you by Pete's Car Smart Kia. These guys are not here just to sell you a car, but they believe in building relationships with their customers and the community. Visit their website at petescarsmartkia.com and be sure to follow them on their social media platforms as well. Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Beyond the Ribbon. My name is Ryan Parnell and as always, I'm joined by my co-host and oncology nurse, Pam McMillan. Ryan, we're back for another episode, and I'm really excited about this one. How about you? Uh, I am too, Pam. It's it's interesting sometimes how we come across uh, some amazing guests for our our podcast, right? Yes. You know, one of my favorite things about my job is hearing stories and learning about a patient's diagnosis and how they cope with it and where they needed to connect and the things that they missed out on um, is absolutely my favorite thing, hearing stories. Yeah, and also I would add to that too, one of the things I enjoy is um, when someone takes their diagnosis and their treatment and then when they're finished with treatment, turns it into something good. Um, I I think that's always, um, you know, utilizing that for, um, for good. And I think that leads right into our guest, Pam. I I can't wait. Let's jump right in. You guys listening today, I want to introduce you to Natalie Stevenson. Uh, Natalie is joining us um, and she has an amazing story. Natalie, thanks for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be a part of this. Well, you know, um, like I said, we 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 come across guests in in um, wonderful, unique ways, and and that's really kind of we stumbled across you. Uh, we're enamored by your story and uh, what you've done um, since you were diagnosed, and so I say, let's just jump right in it. Okay, shall I start with a little bit of my story, kind of the background? Yeah, I I, <laughs> I have a long 10-year cancer survivorship story. Um, when I was 34 years old and a young single mom, I was diagnosed with, with stage 3 breast cancer and went through two years of treatment, including chemo and radiation, multiple surgeries, Um, I kind of joke about it like I was sliced and diced, but as you get on further through your survivorship, you realize sliced and diced isn't so much a joke. We have, you know, a lot of scar tissue and things like that. Um, So I went through all of my treatment and really had a good, strong, positive survivor's attitude. You know, Um, it was difficult treatment, but I felt like I came out of it and had a a good... um, attitude looking forward, like, hey, I've been through treatment. Now I move on with the rest of my life. And over the next several years, I really struggled quite a bit in my survivorship. And I now recognize that that's a common experience with cancer survivors. Yeah. So back whenever you were 34, a single mom, and you heard the word survivor or survivorship, what was your thoughts? What did that mean? Yeah, you know, I, I, I don't feel like I had a definition of, of survivor, survivorship. Um, it, you know, it wasn't even on my radar, to be honest, at all. Um, I was offered a few support programs as I was going through my treatment. Um, some of those were difficult for me because I was such a young person compared to the other people that were in those support groups. Um, so that was kind of... I didn't, uh, I didn't feel a lot of connection in that kind of way, um, being so young, I think. Yeah. You, you mentioned, um, in the, in the podcast that we listened to that you were on that when you were finished with your treatment, you just kind of turned your back on cancer. You were just moving on, weren't talking about it. It was, I mean, it was like, I'm done. I'm moving on. Yeah, yeah, totally. And and I think a lot of survivors do that. Like, hey, let's get through treatment. And then next thing you know, the oncologist is saying, oh, hey, you're done with treatment. We're going to see you three every three months and then every six months. And all of a sudden, you're kind of making that time go longer in between treatment and feeling like an active um, cancer patient. And like I said, not knowing that cancer survivorship is really also very important. Um, I I didn't 
really expect that there would be ongoing, you know, some people say cancer is the gift that keeps on giving. And it's true, you get through treatment. And that's kind of the beginning of this cancer life experience. Yeah, you know, um, we talk about that, Pam, right here at the Survivorship Center is, I mean, we're here when you need us. Um, During treatment, after treatment, and we don't dwell on the fact that you had cancer or you have cancer, whatever stage you're in. Um, and, and it is, it, it, I know everybody's ready to be, be done and move on. But as you said, uh, Natalie, sometimes uh, cancer just won't quite completely go away. Yep. And the side effects of the treatments that you just had, you know, so for example, one of the things for me being 34, I had my ovaries removed intentionally to block the cancer and then was put on an estrogen blocker. Well, at 34 years old to just completely take away the hormone like that, um, you know, the oncologist sent me to the OB-GYN, the OB-GYN put me on antidepressants. those didn't work, you know, and I just, I really have a strong, we'll get into the rest of my story, but you know, the struggle that I went through for those um, three to four years, a lot of it had to do with the body, the physical challenges that, you know, our bodies as young women, we need estrogen. And so what happens when you take away the estrogen, all of a sudden you have all of these other side effects that, aren't technically cancer side effects, but, but they are, you know, um, but you also have the physical ones, but also you have the mental side effects too, that a lot of times, um, we don't hear about. Yes. Yeah. There's so much of a stigma put out to it. And I think too, when you're going through cancer treatment, you know, everybody seems to gather around you, you get all the support, your friends are there, um, checking in on you, even family that's far away, constantly checking in on you. Mm -hmm. And then it's like, once you get this news, oh, I'm done with treatment, there's not cancer in my body. It, It seems like that is in our culture, that's where we believe for the cancer patient, that cancer is that their cancer journey is done, you know? And so that was kind of my expectation was that if I get through treatment and I survive, then when I'm done with treatment, my cancer journey is over. And that, that I think was, a, um, you know, it, it's just a shift in a mindset to kind of learn that, oh, that wasn't the end of my cancer journey. I need to stay connected you know, as I move forward. So for about four years after my treatment was done, I was not connected with other survivors. I was not connected with people my age. I didn't understand what people were doing to help cope with some of these long-term side effects. Um, So I really was just kind of by myself dealing with survivorship and just digging myself into a hole. It it was not looking good. (laughs) I hate that for you. I do. That's that had to be there had to be some incredible dark times during that those those periods, I would imagine. Yeah. And and so frustrating because, you know, I'm a go getter. I've always just pushed really hard in my life. And it was very frustrating to have things interrupt my ability to push as hard as I used to push. And, um, you know, so I went through four years kind of struggling I had chatted with my oncologist just about this, the um, difficulties that I was having. Um, he, his response about the estrogen blocker for me was, well, some women don't tolerate this medication very well. And so I took that kind of like, well, I, t- I can do anything, you know? Yeah. And, um, and so when he told me some women don't tolerate the medication, I chose to get off of the medication after four years of being on an estrogen blocker. And so it was kind of like this, the medication caused me all of these difficulties where I figured the only way to get through the difficulty was to quit the medication. The reality was that that medication, you know, had I been through some mental health care, had I been through some, um, 
you know, PTSD, that happened to me two years of intense cancer treatment. I definitely had post-traumatic stress after that. And it just wasn't, um, you know, I, I wish that every cancer patient, the first thing out of treatment, I wish that they would go see a mental health specialist to talk about what just happened and be able to work through some of those things. So four years, you're still going back to um, your oncologist getting checkup. What happens after that? Yeah, yeah. So I quit taking the estrogen blocker. Um, my cancer needed the estrogen blocker. I was stage three at diagnosis. I knew that uh, my prognosis wasn't all that great. Um, so two years after I quit the medication, my cancer did return into my bone. It um, ate about a two inch. Uh, it put a two inch lesion into my sternum. So um, I, I started to have quite a bit of pain. I honestly, you know, I knew cancer could return, but I had such a great response to my chemotherapy that I honestly thought like, no, the chemo absolutely had to have wiped out all of this cancer, you know? And, and so um, I, I went in thinking it was, um, pain from scar tissue, post-mastectomy, that kind of stuff. And so I was seeing chiropractors and, um, muscle specialists to try to help me get some of that figured out and went back for my regular exam with my, uh, breast surgeon. And she was kind of like, uh, Natalie, we need to get that checked, that pain checked out. And that's when they found, um, that it was cancer that was in my sternum. So now stage four metastatic breast cancer, um, definitely just a very scary diagnosis, a very scary time in my life. I was now 40 years old. My son, was 16 at, at the time I was diagnosed metastatic. So when you, when you finally got the, the, the diagnosis that your cancer had recurred, did you kind of in the back of your mind, you knew, or did you still kind of block that out? Like, I don't, that's not what it is. When, well, when I knew when, for sure, when we had gotten the biopsy and it, I mean, Really, I had a chest MRI or a, a breast MRI is what the breast surgeon had ordered was a breast MRI. The breast MRI said on it, um, it was a really high BIRADS. It's a BIRADS is the number that they give to how high they think that this is cancer. And it was basically, they were like, yeah, this is cancer. So before I even had the biopsy, um, I... I pretty much had already been dealing with this idea of being stage four and what that was going to mean. Um, so, but the biopsy confirmed it, the exact same cancer, just stronger, you know, and that's what we see. And that's why metastatic disease is so scary is because the cancer does it, it, um, it knows how to change. And you guys have the medical words for that. But it knows how to change to to be stronger, you know, to um, to better be able to grow in our bodies. And so sure enough, mine was the exact same cancer, but stronger. Yeah. <laughs> so so whenever yeah. you got the diagnosis of metastatic disease and you're telling your friends and family, do you feel like they had a different take or um, different emotions that came with that diagnosis than the first one? There, um, there definitely is, was maybe a little bit of a lack of understanding of what the difference is between regular breast cancer and metastatic breast cancer. Um, and I think that's true amongst all cancers. Every cancer is very different with the treatments that you go through. And even with breast cancer, you know, you, you may only end up having surgery and, and that's, and that's the extent of the treatment. And so, I think that when I found out it was metastatic, of course, this idea of cancer recurring for my family was a big deal. But for me, I knew that metastatic cancer equaled terminal, <laughs> you know, and, and that's where 
really from that time of diagnosis. I mean, I, I kind of tried to, I never pretended that it wasn't happening, but I tried to, um, you know, just keep every, like, I tried to just really plug into work and focus on work because what do you do and be, you know, for these two or three weeks in between different treatments or different scans, you've, you've got to have something that kind of keeps your mind busy. Otherwise you're just, you're a mess, you know? And so I just plugged harder into work for the first couple of months and ultimately realized once I started the stage four treatment, you know, I'm not going to be able to continue to work through this treatment. And I need to really look at what's most important in my life right now is, is it most important that I turn around and really start to take care of my body and my physical being to, you know, to hopefully keep this cancer at bay or is my priority to just go out and work harder and make more money? I mean, (laughs) yeah. Yeah. And now how old was your, was your son at this time? Yeah. So my son by that point was 16 years old. Uh huh. When I was originally diagnosed, he was in fourth grade. Yeah. So we we were kind of, you know, I ended up going part time at work. That alone, as a single mom, you know, the everything relied on me financial, um, taking care of just everything, school and his life and college and all this kind of stuff. That all relied on me, and um, and so. I, that first year into my metastatic diagnosis, I knew this time around that survivorship had to, I had to engage with this idea of survivorship. It wasn't going to work if I did it the way that I did the first time. If the first time I wasn't connected to people, this time I had to be connected to people for my own mental health, for stress reduction, um, nervous system, you know, your nervous system is just absolutely on fire Mm -hmm. for an extended period of time after a diagnosis like this. And so learning those practices to calm your nervous system, that was all of a learning process. (laughs) Right. So how did you get plugged into a survivorship program? Yeah. So at, at this point, I'm going into the oncologist and distraught, you know, which, which she understands by my, my previous oncologist had retired. And so I had a new oncologist and, um, and she really understood that. And I would be crying, what am I going to do? And she said, go downstairs. We have a survivorship program. They are downstairs. You have to go get connected with them. Like she was pretty adamant that, she couldn't deal with my mental health. She couldn't help me cope with this. She was going to treat me for my cancer, but I needed to go outside of an oncologist to really get treated for the, for the long-term side effects and the mental emotional side effects that, that happened to us. So I did get connected with that community. It was fantastic. I was able to be a a part of a support group of other people who were also metastatic, not necessarily just breast cancer, but a whole group of other people who had kind of walked the path before me. And they, they just helped me out so much. (laughs) You know, one, one, one lady, she was on the medication that I was on, but she had been taking it for two years now. And so she helped me. She said, you know, it makes you exhausted, but instead of trying to push through your exhaustion, which is what I was doing, right. um, schedule a time in the afternoon that you can rest and take naps. And that never would have occurred to me that it was okay for me to nap during the day. And, but that really, you know, the advice, the little tidbits of, of um, tips that they helped me with that really helped me transform my survivorship experience to being a livable experience where it had not been the first time around. Pam here, here's that saying again, right? Uh, Giving yourself permission. Um, Natalie, we've had that come up countless times um, throughout our podcast episode of, you know, when I was finally ready to, and, and 
figured out it's okay, you know, take you take a nap and give myself permission to sit down and let the laundry pile up or let the, you know, whatever it is, but giving yourself permission to take care of yourself. Um, here it is again, Pam. And I, I, th- I think I, all three of us, I think would stress the importance of that to our listeners. Yes. And then also finding that community, finding community that you can connect with, you know, um, there's lots of healthcare workers out there. There's lots of um, family members, but they haven't gone through what survivors have gone through. And so finding someone that you can connect with is so important for another survivor. Absolutely. And I would even take that further and say connecting in community, it's important for the survivor. It's also important for our healthcare system. When we can connect survivors and they can cope with their experience, what happens when they go back into the oncologist's office? They're not having breakdowns in the oncologist's office. They're not freaking out because they don't know what's going on. Instead, they can form, you know, the important questions. They can kind of take that emotional piece out of this doctor's appointment, it's always going to be there, but some of it can be relieved by having survivorship support that is outside of the doctor's office. So I think that it's a really important piece for the oncology clinics to understand that having this, um, you know, psychosocial or social emotional support for survivors really is taking a burden off of them also. Well, and I would imagine, too, by being engaged in um, practices like mindfulness, um, you know, um, other stress reduction techniques, um, focusing and and being present, that prepares you for those medical appointments. And so you are able to help maybe, you know, focus on your breathing or whatever that is that helps you stay kind of grounded and in the moment so that you are a better patient, if you will, um, and maybe can ask the questions instead of saying, oh, crud, I forgot to ask them this, yeah. I forgot to ask that. You're really focused and able to reduce that stress as you have those doctor's appointments. Yeah, absolutely. And and honestly, had it not been for cancer, I don't know that I would have naturally just been a person that would have grad- gravitated toward mind-body programs and things like that. Um, but post-cancer, I mean, that is like my skill that I cling to now, but it's a skill that you learn, you know, and that's why they call it meditation practice or yoga practice or Qigong practice. Mm -hmm. Um, Qigong has been a very important aspect of my survivorship, which I just think is crazy. I never would have thought Qigong like, oh, Natalie's doing Qigong. No, now when I, when I do have intense emotion or when I'm feeling a lot of anxiety, I'll sit for five minutes and just do Qigong. And it, it really does. It calms your nervous system. And I think that that's such an important part of being a survivor that, yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of tied with that mental health aspect. Um, you know, and there's stigma that comes along with that. There's stigma with cancer, there's stigma with mental health, but, um, to me, I just feel like learning some of those coping skills, that's what it is. It's coping skills that help you deal with these long-term side effects. So Very you, important. You found the um, tools to help you cope with um, the mental part of uh, cancer, and then you make a life change by moving, correct? Yeah, so that was kind of part of the, um, you know, and I, I just... You may have to know me a little bit as a person, but for me, walking away from my career was um, definitely, I mean, it was a year of of struggle. You know, I had always been, I had always taken care of myself and my son, like I said, and I, I was proud of the career that I had built. Um, so to you know, sell my house, I was living down in Dallas. Um, at the time when I was diagnosed and, and making the decision to sell my house and let go of my career so that I could move back for me, home was Nevada. And I just really wanted to be able to spend, 
you know, I didn't know how much time I was, I was going to have left. And that was even something that my oncologist, you know, she wasn't, they, they can't tell you how you're going to respond to treatment. And, and so it was, it was kind of like, yes, we have lots of different medications. We'll, we'll do all these different treatments. Like we should be able to treat this, but it was, you know, you don't have an end in sight. And I think that's the difference about living with metastatic disease is that you now know that this is going to be an entire, the rest of my life is cancer related. You know, my, the, the, this is going to be the rest of my life. And if this is going to be the rest of my life, then do I want to spend it plugging away in a career or do I want to spend it with my family? Um, maybe taking a step back, focusing again on my, on my physical body, my health and things like that. So yeah, I, I made some really difficult, um, financial decisions, I suppose when that happened, but happy as can be here to have, to have made that. (laughs) But, but here's the thing I want our listeners to know, Pam, uh, Natalie has not stopped there. Right. I, I, I don't know. I've not known Natalie. I've not, this is our first, you know, meeting other than listening, but I feel how driven and how uh, you're not a sit still person. You're not a, um, well, woe is me. Let's have a pity party. And um, I'm just going to go do this and never, no one's ever going to hear from me again. No, Natalie went and did something um, because of what she's gone through. Right. And because of what you learned, what, what did you start in Nevada? Yeah. So having experienced a cancer community down in Texas and learning and realizing how important it was for my metastatic survivorship. And I recognized immediately that I was missing out on survivorship after my first diagnosis. I, that really could have changed, you know, my ability to continue to take the medication um, things like that, that really could have changed my first survivorship experience. And being as young as I was for both diagnoses, um, I just, uh, I have such a heart for women, especially young women that are going through these things that I never, ever want to see a young woman go through cancer by herself. And so when I moved up here to where I'm living, um, we did not have a survivorship program that really focused on survivorship needs after treatment is done. And so I thought, you know what, I'm, I'm not working. Um, I've, I, was on a difficult medication. And so, um, you know, I needed something that could be flexible. But um, the other thing is that I did graduate my my degree, you know, 20 years earlier was in nonprofit. So when I was going through school, I always I just have a heart for people. And so that's what I went through school for. And then kind of realized like, oh, maybe I want to do something different went off into the financial world. And so now being metastatic, I just feel like every life experience that I have had has led me to this place to be able to create and found um, a wonderful cancer community here locally. Yeah. And, and, and what is that called? Cancer community clubhouse. Yes. <laughs> what are some of the things that y'all offer at the clubhouse? So we definitely, because you, you hear me talk about mind body stuff all the time. We do a lot of mind body programs. We offer Qigong meditation, sound meditation, um, yoga. We aren't currently doing yoga, but we do add yoga in as, as far as a physical aspect. We have a program called coffee connection where survivors just get together and sip coffee and talk. And really that is one of our favorite, you know, our most favorite programs for our survivors, because that's what they want. They want to connect with other people who are going through the same thing, you know, and it helps them when, when we leave our coffee connection, 
Um, or we do a members lunch, similar type of thing where people just talk and meet each other. Everybody feels so great when they're walking out of those programs. And I'll, I, I just love this story. We have one member who was really hesitant to participate. And she had let me know that she, she said, I just, I don't feel like I can show up to something I know I need to, and I want to, but I'm afraid I'm going to cry the entire time. And I said, you know what, if you, if you cry the entire time, that's cool. All of us understand what it's like to feel like that. You know, it's vulnerable to walk in by yourself to a survivorship program because you don't know what to expect and you, you don't, you know, you're already maybe feeling quite a bit of stress yourself. If somebody else all of a sudden is crying and you feel so bad for them, it's going to increase your stress. Anyways, she shows up to the program at the very end, we kind of go around and we're making introductions and talking a little bit. And she stands up and, and that's when she started crying. She said, you guys, I did not want to come today, but this is the first time since I was diagnosed that I did not think about my cancer for two hours. And that to me is like, who would have thought that the person is going to a cancer program and that's the first time that they didn't think about their cancer. And to me, that was just like such a testimony of when you're around other people who you know, they get it. They already know. I don't have to tell them how awful I feel because they know they can see it on my face. We're trying to talk about other stuff or, or, you know, whatever. And next thing you know, two hours went by and it was the first time that she didn't have cancer buzzing in her ear, you know, in her head, spinning in her head. And I, so that for me is purpose. That's why we do these programs. You know, Ryan, whenever I meet with survivors, they're always hesitant to come to the survivorship center for whatever reason. And, you know, I always tell them this is the only time that we'll ever talk about cancer. Mm -hmm. Um, you're welcome to talk about it, but you don't have to in any of these classes. So, you know, sometimes I'm just reassuring them that it's not, um, sitting around saying I have this type of cancer or, um, but finding community that they can enjoy being around. There's a lot of powerful pieces there that Natalie shared. Uh, one of which I think, um, we understand um, but more importantly, the cancer community understands and they get it. You're, you're right, Natalie. They, they understand, they get it. Um, the tiredness, the, you know, whatever it may be, the fatigue, the mm-hmm. stress, they get it. Um, we work here and I pretend a lot of times I get it, you know, and I, I know Pam, you, you, you would probably echo the same thing. I mean, it's a different kind of get it you know, um, and, and this is a, and I would imagine, um, the, the cancer community clubhouse is as well, but we always like to say that our survivorship center is a safe place. Um, it is a place that you can come and you can be you, um, and, and also achieve hopefully, as Natalie said about, um, that, that those moments where you're not dwelling on the fact that you have cancer or you're not, you know, freaked out about the results you're supposed to get tomorrow or hope to get tomorrow um, or the test that's upcoming. You know, you have these these little small mental escapes at times and, and it can do your body so good. Yeah. Yeah. And and learning while you're there, too. You know, I I really think it's so important the way that we help each other as survivors giving tips and tricks, (laughs) you know, some of the, some of the best coping mechanisms or not even coping, but you know, what do you do about the bone pain and how do you deal with this? And then people throw out ideas, you know, like, Oh, I take an Arnica bath and Oh my gosh, the first time I took an Arnica bath, I was like, Holy smokes, this stuff works great. Why didn't I know about this before? Some of the best um, things have come from other survivors who have tried different things and found what worked for them. And then when you hear it and you try it for yourself, either it works or it doesn't work, but 
if it works, it's a great improvement. And a lot of times these aren't things that our doctors are telling us. They're things that as survivors, we have learned, you know, how, how to cope with some of these things. You learn from others' experiences, others, um, maybe their successes and their failures. Um, but you certainly, you know, it's like, um, you know, I don't have to necessarily know all the answers. I can surround myself with people that do. And uh, I, I think that's a, it's a very good depiction of what survivorship can be um, and, and, and learning those things. Have you found um, yourself, and I, I kind of was thinking about this, because where you, where you were, where you are, and now what you're doing are kind of those three different roles, right? So where you were and where you are now, and then what you're doing now. Do you find yourself as kind of like this this mentor, even though you are you are in a uh, metastatic stage? Um, whereas a lot of times people might look at you and say, "But Natalie, you should be the one partaking in all of these things, not the one giving." Yes, and the you know when we first started this nonprofit organization. And we actually first started having programs available for for people to come and attend. Um, that that definitely happened to me. It was about the first six months. There was kind of this: I need to be here as a survivor, but I am leadership in this organization, <laughs> you know, and so trying to find the balance between those two things that, that first of all, leaders don't always have to just be, um, uh, what's the, the word for it? Like you don't always just have to be non-emotional and, you know, stoic. seem, yeah, stoic. There you go. Like seem like everything is totally just fine. And once I realized that once I, um, it, because that's a vulnerable situation. It's vulnerable to be leadership, but then to show up with some of these struggles and issues that we've talked about with survivors. You know, it's vulnerable to be both of those at the same time. So for the, the first six months of doing programs, I just really let the participants and we were small. And so, you know, we were small and then we grew Um I, I was just really open with people like, hey, I do have metastatic breast cancer. I am in treatment. These are the difficulties of treatment. And and this is why I love cancer survivors so much is because to them, there was there, that was no big deal for them to hold space for me equally as I held space for them. You know, um, I'll I'll give you a little bit further of the story that we didn't even have on the last podcast. I had mentioned that, um, you know, being that the cancer was in my sternum and I did have my sternum radiated, but I ended up with, um, with fractures in my ribs and fractures in your ribs would certainly with metastatic breast cancer seemingly be potential cancer spots. And at the time I had backed off of one of my medications. And so I was concerned that the, maybe the cancer was coming back, but they couldn't biopsy those areas. And so it was kind of a wait and see situation. And um, just about a month ago, a PET scan was approved. I had some issues with the insurance, which is another difficult thing, right? Yeah. Um, but the PET scan was approved and it, it shows that there's not activity in those ribs, nor is there activity in my sternum anymore. So the treatment is working. Um, and as of right now, I'm no evidence of active disease three uh, years after getting my metastatic diagnosis. Wow. That's something to celebrate for absolutely. sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. And then like, and then what does that present now? So we've talked about when I got diagnosed metastatic and kind of where my headspace was and how difficult it was and how I changed my entire life based on I've got to live for today and and really make every single day count today. And now all of a sudden I'm like, oh my gosh, like 
I could, I could potentially like live for a very long time without active disease. Now it's reframing my mind again, going, Oh, I might need a retirement account now, (laughs) you know, and and what am I going to do now? And so now I'm, I'm back into this shifting phase of, of a cancer journey. And that's just totally what it is. It's a cancer journey it was that way from the moment I got diagnosed, I should have never walked away from this idea of survivorship. And now I'm like, you know, my whole world within the last couple of weeks has really just turned back upside down on me. I will continue to be on treatment forever. You know, it's not something where it's like, oh, it's gone. So now I can get off treatment. No way. I will always be on treatment, which means I'll always have side effects, but not having to be on the worst treatments or the treatments that really interrupt my quality of life. And really, that's everything we're talking about is quality of life in survivorship. How good of a quality of life are we helping cancer survivors live after? their treatments. Right. I have two questions for you. The first one is what is one piece of advice that you would give someone that is newly diagnosed and what is something that you wished people knew about metastatic disease? Okay. Um, the first one, what advice would I give to somebody newly diagnosed? I think that would be my advice is I know people when they're newly diagnosed don't want to hear that cancer survivorship is going to be a life. This is a lifelong journey now. Um, But I wish that I had heard that because it may have encouraged me to plug into supportive systems around me as opposed to walking away and thinking that the journey was over. You know, I thought that the journey was over, but if, if survivors from the moment they're diagnosed can incorporate some type of survivorship program, even if it's a matter of doing something online on zoom to connect with a support group or something, you know, maybe they can't participate actively because of treatment, but try to get connected with other survivors because it's going to make your survivorship journey that much better for all the years to come, you know? So, um, That's my advice for somebody newly diagnosed. Tell me what your second one was again. What do you wish people knew about metastatic disease? Okay, so living with metastatic disease, um, what I really wish people knew and understood about metastatic disease is, um, first of all, that in in most cancer cases, this becomes a, a life a life journey. Um, you know, they don't, at least with breast cancer, maybe some other cancers, but we don't really talk about cures in metastatic breast cancer. And so what happens is you live a life that's kind of in between. And, um, so when I say in between, it's because you hold on to hope, you know, you have to have some hope. I hope that this treatment is going to work and continue to work for me. I have to hold on to hope. And at the same time, we, we know realistically, most of us understand what our chances are of dying, how quick we will die from it or how long we'll live and kind of setting your expectation. Like I said, I honestly have never thought that I would get to a retirement age since I've had metastatic breast cancer. And so that changes kind of the way you move through life because you, you're now living with like an end point. And, you know, people say, well, well, being human is a terminal disease. We're all human. We're all going to die. I was, I've never been afraid of death. (laughs) You know, as I went through all this journey, I'd be the one that goes, I'm not afraid to die. If it's my time to go, I'll die. It's totally different when you're metastatic cancer and, and, and you're all of a sudden going, yeah, I'm not afraid to die. I'm afraid to 
die with cancer. Like we don't see people die with cancer or, you know, like I, I feel like I'd rather get hit and like die in a car accident where it's just spontaneous and it happens. People dying with cancer have pain and there is suffering involved in it, you know? And so being able to learn how to transform suffering, that was a huge part of, of my growth through metastatic disease. So I guess, I guess my point is, is that, you know, you look at me, I, I look like nobody would ever think that I'm a cancer patient because I look fine when, when I'm out in public, I totally look normal. Nobody knows I have cancer, but then needing to come home and take a two hour nap in the afternoon, they don't see me in those periods of time. They don't see how I'm accommodating the food I eat, what times I eat food, the nutritional supplements that I'm on, how, how those may or may not keep me strapped to the house for some reason, um, or even medications that we're on, how it changes like our daily living. And I think when we focus on what a cancer patient looks like and what we think a cancer patient looks like, then we miss that there are so many other bodily functions that are, that have been now changed because of all of these treatments. Yeah. You know, whenever I think of metastatic disease, you know, we typically think of, um, like you said, look sick, but just because you have medic metastatic disease, doesn't mean that, um, you don't have to look sick. Um, but you can also live with metastatic disease too. Yeah. And what we've, what I'm learning, um, in our group, a lot of the people that come are metastatic. They have many years left to live. And that's also a shift in cancer care and cancer survivorship when, when people used to die from metastatic disease, but now they're living for a long time afterwards. What are we doing to make sure that, that, they're, that they can live a good life, mm-hmm. you know, going forward? And, and these, you know, maybe I can't take away some of the symptoms that people are having, but when they can show up to a lunch and they can just socialize with other people that are going through something. And that might be the one or two times a month that they're socializing, that they're even getting out of their house. So just really important that we understand that like, Hey, we're saving people's lives here. They're living longer, but what are we doing to, um, to make that a life worth living. Right. Oh my goodness. Uh, lots to unpack, Pam, a lot yeah. to unpack. But you uh, know, the beautiful thing that Natalie says, you know, find community. And that's the reason why we are here. We're here at the survivorship center to help you that are listening. Um, take that chance, come to one of the classes, um, give us a call. That's, um, a chance on you. Well, and, and, stepping out. And, you know, one thing, Natalie, you said, um, I wrote down uh, really big here on my piece of paper. um, And you said you struggled for four years post-treatment. And that just broke my heart. Uh, That is the last thing we want anyone to do is to struggle post-treatment, struggle during treatment. But you you have... um, Golly, I almost can't even talk. You you have resources here, much like you guys have there uh, at your clubhouse. But the resources that are available, if you'll just, as you said, Pam, take a take a chance, just make a phone call, send an email, you know, reply to a Facebook message, whatever it might be. Um, get plugged in. Yeah, you may come to a yoga class and go, no, I can't do that. But you may go to a water class and go, now this is really awesome. And so I, I say it all the time. I know Pam, you do too. We kind of talk, talk about our calendar, Natalie, as being a gigantic buffet and you pick and choose. And we have, uh, you know, Tai Chi and Qigong and, and we have all the things. Um, and by no means do we expect you to come to everything um, because it looks different for every person. You probably would never catch me doing Tai Chi or Qigong, but I I would do the water class personally. I would do, you know, some of our hikes and things we do. Um, But that just, I I just want to make sure and and let everyone know that's, that's listening to this podcast. 
you do not have to struggle alone. That's right. Yes. And survivorship is absolutely done better in community. Yes. That's why we're here. Yeah, that's it. Natalie, thank you so much for sharing your story for all that you do for the cancer community. And we're blessed to have you here on the podcast. And that leads us to our last segment is Pete's Powerful Moment. We are sponsored by Pete's Car Smart Kid. Do you have a powerful moment that you could share with us? Yes, I do. So um, my Pete's Powerful Moment is if we are going to save the lives of people with cancer, it is imperative that we focus on improving quality of life in survivorship so that the life saved is one worth living. Wow. Boy, that's hard to follow. Um, yeah, Natalie, thank you so much. I, I know you're make this podcast is going to make an impact on someone, much like I, I know that you you make an impact on uh, survivors there in the Nevada area at your clubhouse. Um, thank you for what you're doing and for joining us today. Um, I mean, gosh, Pam, you could say Pete's powerful moment is just this entire podcast. Um, <laughs> I just all the nuggets in here. I, I feel that 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 this whole podcast has been a Pete's powerful moment almost. Um, I, I'm I'm blown away. A um, couple of things, right? We we always leave our listeners with homework. Um, so I, I really want to challenge our listeners. I know we say this often. You know, look at our calendar, look at our website, um, find something to get engaged in. It, you may say, there's no way I'm going to a support group. I am not doing support group. But you know what? Tai Chi and Qigong and yoga, and those are support groups. You're just doing exercises. Um, be a part of something. Um, I know, Pam, you talk about that with you when you meet with survivors is um, find something and get engaged in. Find something that sparks your interest. Um, everything is not for everybody, but there is something for everybody out there. And the unique thing too is, Pam, everything is free. Free. We you like come that to word. a Tai Chi class and you don't like it, you have not lost anything other than a little bit of time. That's um, right. You know, come to the pound class, come to uh, water experts, come to something, come to something. Now, the other thing is um, we want to make sure and, and, and let folks know how they can continue to support our program and continue to support the podcast uh, by making a, a monetary donation. We have a website set up. It's actually on our website, uh, the number 24survivorship.org slash donate. But while you're there, make sure you go check out the calendar. Make sure you look at it. There's probably 60 to 65 items on there in a month's time frame for you to be a part of. Um, um, take advantage of one of those things. Um, share the podcast with folks. Share our website with your friends. And then make sure you join us here next week for another great episode of Beyond the Ribbon. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Beyond the Ribbon. Make sure to subscribe to our weekly podcast and follow us on social media for news and updates. If you'd like more information about the 24 Hours in the Canyon Cancer Survivorship Center, please visit our website, 24survivorship.org. Thanks again, and we'll be back next week.